This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster Podcast. I'm Jamie, and I'm here with Amanda. Hey. And Joe. Hi. And we're here to discuss a different part of space history. Throughout the years of the space age, there have been many times when there's a new concept that has to be developed to fix a problem, to achieve a mission, something like that. And of course, with all the things that actually were executed, there's a lot of stories that fell by the wayside, things that were bold, ambitious plans that never were actually tried. So what we're going to do today is something a little different. We're going to explore some of those stories that were bold, crazy, wild space plans that never came to fruition. So to get started, I think I'll toss it over to you, Amanda, with something from the 1970s. Sure. Well, first off, thank you for having me, Jamie. Excited to be back on the pod with you and Joe. Happy to have you here. So yeah, today, you know, in my research, trying to figure out the craziest space stories that are missions rather, but never really took place. I found a lot of interesting info, lots of details too about space travel that I didn't even realize, you know, as a somewhat new entrant into the kind of space exploration realm, even though I work at Supercluster still is new kind of to me overall. It was just really interesting to dive into, you know, limitations, things that other people just accept as fact at face value, you know, like obviously the the ship has to turn around before it lands on its lunar surface or and you know, that's something that I just didn't even consider. So this yeah. is all this is all to say that it, it's it's nice to dive into this kind of world every once in a while and learn things that you don't normally get to think about. But yeah, one of the the most interesting things that I found was the 1975 plan for an enormous colony in outer space. This is after the Apollo program. Scientists were just kind of wrapping their head around, you know, how would we inhabit space and what would that look like? And they came up with this idea in this 1975 study for this habitat where 10,000 people would work raise families and live out normal human lives on essentially like a centrifuge in outer space. It would be actually called the giant spinning wheel that just kind of floats around there. It has to spin to simulate gravity. And they would actually harvest the resources of the moon because carrying or kind of transporting the resources from Earth would be so much more difficult than just getting it from the moon because of the atmosphere on Earth versus the kind of lack thereof on the moon. Yeah, and the, and the lower gravity, too. You only have to have one-sixth of, you know, everything weighs one-sixth of what it weighs on Earth, so mm. it's less rocket power to get it somewhere exactly, else. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's a very interesting concept. that It would harvest solar energy as well because obviously there's an abundance of sunlight in outer space. So that's how they would generate their electricity and power their solar furnaces. And then 
They're also like one of the main purposes would be industry. So they would be like refining metal from lunar ores shipped inexpensively into space. So it was kind of wacky. And and I sent you guys this this amazing illustration that they made of the wheel concept oh, yeah. and what it would look like. It kind of was only like a hundred acres of of land basically that they would put inside of this like big wheel. But it's hilarious looking at, you know, their vision. It's it's beautiful. Like I, I commented how they have like little alfresco diners in this, yeah, was, <laughs> in oh, this yeah. illustration they have. It's and, incredibly it, optimistic. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that they took the time to consider, you know, 1950s suburban American leisure as a component of this science experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, when you think about a backyard with a grill and a patio table <laughs> and, and an umbrella. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it, and it should be that big. I mean, you know, you can't see the picture through the podcast, but this is like a very large, luxurious patio that you know, and how much it costs to send things to space, and how much a premium you put on just square footage up there. It's pretty amazing what they thought we could accomplish. Yeah, exactly. And it, it kind of it really like made me wonder too, like how this would spin out of control. Like, would there be like a real estate market in the space colony? Would you like trade for a better view? You would want the condo that has like that Venus view, something like you want to be next to the, there seems to be some type of like balsam or like eucalyptus tree in one of these, like that would be great to have in your plot. So this, this was really fascinating to me, obviously too, because I tend to be of the mind that community raising of children and families is an interesting concept. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, it seems like society is starting to adopt that concept a bit more too. So it would be pretty rad if when we eventually start to colonize space, if it was like you go up there with 10,000 of your closest friends to live out in perfect harmony in a giant wheel designed in 1975. And that's kind of what I want. And so then I also started thinking about kind of what role I would take on. So I thought that would be mm. interesting, interesting to talk about. I think I know, and absolutely forgive me if I'm incorrect in assuming these, these things for you, but I think I know what you guys would be. <laughs> okay, I'm anxious to hear it. Please. I think Joe Haddad would quite obviously be a farmer in outer space. Oh, space farmer. Yeah, I think that's... That's it's like definitely- fi and lo-fi at the same time. Yeah, it's it seems like it's a good marriage of your skills. And Space Farmer is actually, would be kind of complex. You'd be like Matt Damon in The Martian. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have his math skills, so. But yeah. Right. But you'd have more uh, support. Yeah. I think you would, you would probably have the first, like, farm-to-table restaurant uh, yes. in, in the space colony. Blue Hill of Venus, if you will. Yeah, it would be highly sought out. Difficult to get a table. Yeah, lines all around the ring. Yeah, and Jamie, I could see you being kind of leading the the scientific efforts on the space colony. Like oh, you're exciting. you're advancing us into the future. Like, what is next for the space colony? You know, like can we can we get a swimming pool in the space colony? Mm. You know, all right. we'll just- how do we get bigger, better space tomatoes for Joe? Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Now, and then th- this kind of, I don't know who I would be. So I, I want you guys to tell me where you think I would fit in. Amanda, I feel like you're the person who explains this whole thing. 
because I, f- I feel like part of, I mean, part of why Supercluster exists is because of stories like the one that you're telling. This absurd image, this crazy painting of, you know, utopian 50s barbecue life in a space donut. But those stories are being told by scientists and engineers, people who don't see the wonder and the potential in them in the way that you're describing it. You know, what would life really be like? I feel like mm-hmm. in some ways, that's the most important, more important than the scientists or the engineers or the farmers are the people who are going to say, this is why this matters. This mm. is what it could be like. So I work, right. in, I work in space advertising. Exactly. I'm a space, <laughs> a space salesman. Yeah, a space communicator. I'm not mad at it. Yeah, I like that. I'm a space communicator. I think Joe is right. This would be a broad conceptual departure from any lifestyle that has existed before. You know, it's, you know, maybe it's a little like submarine life because you're isolated in the capsule, but there's 10,000 people. So maybe it's like small town life, but you're floating in outer space and everything is run by robots and technology. You know, so there's, I think that the ability to help people digest that and know how to look at it and offer perspective would become very important in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad at that being my lot in the commune, in the space commune. I, I'll, I'll help comfort the wary early settlers that aren't used to adopting the space lifestyle. You write some brochures about, you know, your life with a Venus yeah. view and... Mm-hmm. I would help them develop the merch kits to kind of like get people excited, put on their mm-hmm. like space commune t-shirt. I think it could all work. We keep space morale high and make sure that everyone understands the mission. Okay, I'll take it. But yeah, that's kind of the whole gist of the thing. I, I thought the photo was stunning. It is interesting. You point out that it's a painting. I love that. I love the thought oh, of yeah. somebody at NASA, their job is like, can you just paint a beautiful watercolor photo of this completely abstract, out-of-this-world idea that I have? I yeah. Amazing. There's something more aspirational about a painting, I think. There's a warmth to it. You know, you want to, in the same way that advertising of the time was, and in a way, this is an advertisement for an experiment. You know, you, yeah. want, you want to be there. You see yourself in the little family sitting on that space patio. Yeah, and there is a level of detail, but detail also left out that a painting affords that I think mm-hmm. uh, leaves leaves some room for the imagination. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a fantastic one and, you know, fantastic story. And as we've all alluded to, very ambitious, very aspirational. But I think that's the type of thing that drove this all forward. And also, I would comment that the space ring, the giant donut in space, is something that has stuck with us since the earliest days. Later on, I'll refer to a Werner von Braun idea, but that one was from even 20 years earlier in the mid-50s, and he was talking about a giant ring in space. And of course, there's 2001, a space odyssey with a ring in space, and I I think that's a concept that's going to stick with us. You see it in modern movies as well. Until we build one, we're going to keep painting it. So who's next? I can't wait to hear the next story. All right. I can jump in. Yeah, Jamie, if you could play like an evil lightning crackle sound, I will, <laughs> I will tell you guys about Project Excalibur. Oh, wow. That sounds evil. So please tell us about this creepy, spooky project. Yeah. Well, first, a thought that I had at the beginning of this, I think every space mission is a crazy one, whether it goes off or not. They're They're all in one way or another, totally absurd efforts. But 
something interesting happened in the mid-70s in space. After the Apollo program had sort of accomplished its goals, I feel like the space that space represented changed in the public consciousness. In the 60s and the early 70s, space was like you know, climbing to the top of Mount Everest or going to the west of North America, you know, as a territory, is about manifest destiny, exploration, pioneers. There's something sort of heroic about that. And then it's almost like after we went to the moon, we were like, okay, it's time for a new myth. It's time for the second act. And so space became, it sort of shifts from this idealistic, you know, human heroic effort to a place that needs to be defended, surveilled, armed, armored. And nowhere is this more evident than in the Reagan-era ballistic missile defense programs that were put together at the height of the Cold War to protect America from hypothetical nuclear attack from the Soviet Union. And Project Excalibur is sort of the peak of absurdity in this effort. This was a time when there was a ton of defense spending being pointed at space, at the stars, saying, how can we protect America from an attack? How can we attack our enemies? It's sort of the total inversion of the utopian optimism of the 60s, of shared exploration and scientific data. And I think there's something sort of compelling about that because you know NASA's always struggling to raise their budget to get enough money to you know accomplish these humanitarian goals but as soon as space became about warfare suddenly you have hundreds of millions of dollars to build a nuclear powered x-ray laser <laughs> just like you you rolled the sci-fi word dice and read out what exactly. came up on all the faces <laughs> exactly And it's almost like, yeah, if you took all of the evil Bond villain and Austin Powers villain weapons and efforts and put them into one of those, you know, uh, lottery ball roller machines and spat it out, what you would get is what was going on at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, the LLNL in Berkeley, California in the 70s, where a lot of the mines that worked on the Manhattan Project and developed ICBMs were focusing on how we could take the Cold War into space and shoot down missiles, attack our enemies, and defend America before we were struck. In particular, these two scientists, these two guys, they were part of the O Group, which, of course, your clandestine weapons research facility needs a name like the O Group. So these two guys, Edward Teller and his protege, this guy named Lowell Wood, put together a group of X-ray, laser, and nuclear warhead specialists. And basically, I would imagine what they did was, over the course of one sleepless night, took all of their research and put it on the wall and sort of dragging those little red yarn strings together. And what they came up with was a satellite, a, a satellite with a nuclear warhead at its core. And surrounding it were thousands of X-ray lasers. Now, When a nuclear bomb or a nuclear warhead explodes, it generates an incredible amount of x-rays from the heat and light that it emits. And the idea would be if the Soviet Union was to launch a missile from Russia 
up into space towards America, this satellite would explode. And the subsequent x-rays released by the nuke would then be focused into the thousands of lasers floating all around it. And those individual lasers would then aim at that enemy bomb and they would destroy it with a concentrated beam. It's a plan as comical as it is disturbing and violent and indicative of how culturally we we were exploring space at the time. So, so just so I have this right, it's a network of satellites, some of which are essentially like the cartridges in a gun, like a disposable Correct. element that would self-destruct, and then the energy released from it would be harnessed by the other satellites to create the beam. That's unbelievable. That's an excellent breakdown, Jamie. And it sort of points at the Rube Goldberg absurdity of this whole effort. Yeah. And just one other interjection there. X-ray laser, just to clarify that, it's like any, you know, a normal laser that you can see, a very focused beam of light, but the light is in the X-ray spectrum, which means it's invisible radiation. Exactly. Spooky. Extremely spooky. And beneath your beautiful utopian painting, Mm -hmm. and uh, I have added this bizarre 3D rendering that no doubt was projected large in a Pentagon meeting with Ronald Reagan of a sort of comical, you know, cylindrical bomb with the Soviet Union CCCP (laughs) on it being intersected by three blue Star Wars-ish lasers all emerging from their own nuclear explosion. You raised the excellent point, Jamie. In order to use this weapon, they also had to blow up the weapon. Uh, <laughs> it is, it really, I, I mean, I know that it's, I, I forget what year you mentioned exactly, but it is like the ultimate 80s, like you said, Bond villain action movie concoction of things. And that last phrase that you just said, in order to use the weapon, you have to blow up the weapon. It's, is, I don't know, it makes me laugh inside quite a bit and picture cartoonish generals with many medals who are just eager to push a big red button. Exactly. And funnily enough, Jamie, that that sort of imaginary scenario is is pretty close to the truth because as you can imagine, this is a fairly complex device that they were trying to produce and they were teaming up with scientists and physicists and engineers who were experts in these different fields. But all of these experts were pretty convinced that this was something that you should not and also could not do in space. <laughs> too complicated, too many steps. But these guys, Lowell and Wood, were so thrilled about this idea. They were so fired up around combining lasers and nuclear weapons that against the testing that they conducted in the early 70s and against the advising of the experts, They brought the idea forward to Ronald Reagan in a debate with several other defense companies that would come to be known as the Laser Wars in the White House. House. Perfect. In the The early days. The White House. Yes. Where in which the House of Representatives backed Teller and Wood's research around the magical X-ray space laser, while the Senate supported a different group. And these were the laser wars in the White House. These guys were able to convince Reagan by going around their own supervisors and convincing him of the validity of of their experiments by sort of falsifying some of their early tests to secure 
hundreds of millions in funding for future research. And so these guys are sort of riding high, ignoring the naysayers, and continuing to conduct nuclear tests in the desert to try to build their death ray. They pushed out members who would disagree, but their experiments continued to fail. And there was a great moment in the late 80s where sort of realizing that their x-ray laser wouldn't be effective enough, the two, Teller and Wood, decided to announce a new program called Excalibur Plus, and then a following program called Super Excalibur, which I kid you not, was considered- Right? So Excalibur Plus would be 1,000 times more powerful than the original Excalibur by (laughs) doubling the number of lasers. And then Super Excalibur would multiply that by another 1,000 times, making it 1 trillion times brighter than the bomb (laughs) that it would be destroying. I mean, it's so absurd. It's so, it's, what these guys were doing, I feel like is such a dark chapter, both in our history and in the history of space exploration. But they're just riding so high, and these descriptions are so absurd that you cannot help but laugh at what these guys were trying to do and the way that they were illustrating it and selling it to the president at the time. Despite the promise of Super Excalibur and its trillion, you know, nuclear bombs of brightness, eventually the lack of scientific evidence and successful testing caught up with these guys. Their funding was drained, and in a 60 Minutes interview with Edward Teller, when he was questioned about some of the other scientists he was working with, whose research he had been ignoring, he unplugged the microphone that the host was using and walked right off the set. Mm. And that was the end of Project Excalibur. That's amazing. And I think it's worth pointing out, just for, for those who aren't familiar with, with Edward Teller, is he is a mega heavyweight in the history of physics. As part of the Manhattan Project, you know, he wasn't just one of the many scientists. He was one of the earliest ones, one of the most crucial minds that solved that. He developed the, this implosion idea that allowed them to create the first atomic bomb by making a pattern of explosives that exploded inward. So this is a guy that, when he proposes an idea... It's not just a crackpot idea. So the wildness of the story that you just told us, the out there-ness of it and that hubris is just amplified by the fact that somebody who really knew what he was talking about was still pursuing this and still thinking. And maybe it's because they had this success recently or somewhat recently of the atom bomb that they thought they could always push the envelope that much farther. Yeah, he was also famously difficult to work with. So I think that that story about 60 Minutes really fits what I've heard. Totally. I, and I absolutely agree with you, Jamie, that he was riding high from the success of the Manhattan Project, but he was ostracized by many of the other scientists he worked with there. Famously, Robert Oppenheimer was not a fan of him and pushed oh. him out following a lot of those experiments. And so I think there is a sort of dogged desire to outdo you know, your failings or, you know, the people, the naysayers, the people who have kind of denied you this moment. And I would not be surprised if that had a hand in pushing him down this absurd path of space lasers. Definitely. I like the thought of them, like Jamie said earlier when we were talking before this podcast, it was like they were sitting in the lab and it's like almost as if they had a slider 
and they were like just kept pushing it to the right like um not yeah. 500 keep going 600 seven okay how about let's do a thousand more lasers it was all, it's <laughs> inconceivable but they were just like yeah fuck it let's do it <laughs> yeah and it, it sounds it sounds like the kid approach like you're playing a video game it's like yeah. your spaceship and you just keep adding on more lasers until yeah. it yeah. can't even move and then you lock yeah, it you know? exactly and, it's like the sims you're like oh a thousand let's do that a thousand more will do it surely <laughs> and then the u.s government ponies up the money yeah, yeah. you know it's there's something the study in and of itself is so comical but then our government's willingness to sort of dive into this Anything to outdo the Soviets or oh, you know, sure. it's our military might. They were just hurling money at those thousand more lasers. It sounds like something that Space Force might be doing right now as we speak. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on in those meetings. But. Might be right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have checked out that Steve Carell show, by the way. And I, I like it. Maybe it's because I like the subject matter so much. I think it's pretty good. But regardless of whether you enjoy it, it is spot on, the comment you just made. <laughs> you know, the, the picture they paint of that organization would absolutely build super mega double triple Excalibur. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet. I mean... Just based on the way that our current administration is run, it sounds like something that would happen. Kind of, yeah. But I mean that one up the other guys. That note, I mean, you think of the ego it takes to become president at all, and then you know we can debate the different egos of different presidents. But when one of the most brilliant scientists in recent history comes to you and says, "Hey, you want a super mega space laser that uses X rays to vaporize everyone's satellites?" You're probably going to say yes. Probably going to be like, "Yeah, I want that." You know, screw them, let's do it rather us than somebody else definitely yeah it's such a strange chapter you know we followed up the most idealistic sort of heroic moment with one that was so dystopian and bizarre and absurd almost a, a parody of the you know the previous moment you know it, it makes me think hearing you say that it is a little bit cyclical you know we start the space age or the space race taking weapons straight up weapons from world war ii missile development and then attaching scientific payloads and people to the top of them and trying to fly them to space. And then over time, it arced away from those weapons and they were developing rockets that were purely for peaceful scientific purposes. You know, then the government comes back in and gets involved and space shuttle era was kind of a combination of both. You had these heavy science experiments, but every few shuttle missions, there'd be one that was top secret. and No one can say what the payload is. And that even happens today. You've got SpaceX developing rockets that are going to bring, you know, civilian communication satellites, but also governmental things. So I think it, it tends to push and pull as technology you know, advances and totally. then as wars come and go, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I think now is a good point to kind of pivot to a couple quick and more lighthearted stories. Thank you so much for that one, Joe. It's really incredible. I feel like I want to look at more concept art from that. So I want to hit you with just a couple quick ones. The first one is something that came up in the very early days of the space age. This is before even Sputnik was up there. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but in those days, when Werner von Braun was trying to get a lot of public support for space exploration, he teamed up with Disney and made a series of television shows that essentially laid out his fantasies for space exploration. In one of those videos, he shows a model of something that I wanted to talk about called, or nicknamed, the bottle suit. This was essentially a concept for a spacesuit that also operated as a personal spacecraft. And I want to describe its shape to you. So essentially, picture an ice cream cone, like a cone shape with a rounded top. Mm -hmm. And then all around the rim of that wide part of the ice cream cone, 
are seven arms pointed in all directions that can expand and retract. On the top of the ice cream cone dome is a little glass bubble, and that's where your head goes. And then pointed up, like straight up out of the top of your head, and straight down of the pointy end of the cone are little rocket jets. So (laughs) the way this would work is it would fully dock into a spaceship. So there'd just be like a big whole round port in the spaceship, and it would dock, and then a little cone would be pointing out. And you could get in and out of it inside the spaceship. And then while it's flying around, like you would undock, fly around, all those seven arms would have a different tool attached to them. And so gyroscopes inside this little craft would let you turn around and reorient yourself. And this is how Werner von Braun thought that astronauts could build a space station. Because they'd have, you know, they don't need a tool belt or anything. They would just rotate themselves inside the flying cone and control the arm that had the screwdriver or whatever on it. And then when they need a different tool, they just turn to the different arm. And it's just such a different concept for what a personal spacesuit should be. And I love it. So I just wanted to point that one out as something that he really, and that idea lasted for years. He really thought that that's how we were going to do this. But obviously, we never built anything bigger than a model. Yeah, I couldn't resist Jamie looking up. There are great photos of him presenting that model to presumably other NASA officials. It's so delightful and sort of, again, that sort of idea of like, what is the child's logic? What is the simplest way to do this? You know, and it's very sweet and sort of 1940s looking. But then as you described it, I sort of thought about the new spacesuits that NASA just unveiled for their Mars mission, which do in fact have a mechanism that docks them to you know a craft or to a structure you enter right. back and so in some ways i think that engineering idea or probably some of the other ideas as well have kind of matriculated through existing suits yeah yeah it's a really good idea and it solves this whole problem of trying to get dressed and undressed in and out of an extremely bulky thing while in the cramped quarters of a spacecraft like that I mean, that was a problem since the Apollo days. I mean, mm-hmm. Obviously, we're, we're kind of shifting back and forth in history, but that's been something that, that people faced right away. So yeah, there are some ideas from it that stuck around. And also the idea of the different tools at the end of different arms, obviously we don't do that for spacesuits right now, but there are certain types of robotics that have used that. And we have semi-humanoid robots on the International Space Station right now. I think there's two or three of them, but one of them is essentially just a bunch of arms that can be controlled and you put different tool attachments onto the end of them. So that concept of he wasn't he wasn't tools, too far off. Yeah. He had some some good ideas there. Joe, I hope you were taking notes. I I need to see this realized in the designs. <laughs> it sounds like some good concept art. Definitely. This is like oh, yeah. the in- inspector gadget of of spacesuits. I don't know yeah. if you oh, totally. touched yeah. that. So silly and logical in a silly yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. It's the type of thing where if it existed, it just couldn't not be silly, even though you're right. It's a good, it's not a bad idea. It's just inherently silly. We yeah, have your, exactly. little, your little head poking out, the rest of your body totally hidden as you fly around in your weird spider probe droid ice cream cone. Ship. It sounds kind of Spy Kids-esque even. Oh, I would yeah. go so far as to say. Who's that guy? Like Mr. Floop? This sounds like something he would have dreamed up in his phantasmical kingdom. Yeah, and if if Von Braun had had his way, these would have built not only the space station, but they would have been like the go-to way to build anything in space. So, you know, his vision for spacecraft would be that they would always have docking ports for these little personal bottle suits. 
as they uh, come to be known. One other thing I wanted to bring up, just as we're talking about unrealized plans, and this one sort of spans the realm of things that were planned and never realized and things that are currently being planned that may still come to fruition. And this is two ideas based around the exploration of Saturn's largest moon called Titan. Now, if you're not familiar with Titan, the reason that it's so exciting as a potential exploration site is it's basically the most Earth-like thing that we have in our solar system. It's smaller than Earth, but it has a lot of water on it. It has obviously not the same range of temperatures, but temperatures that theoretically could be supportive of life. And so we're really interested to explore it. The problem is that it has these clouds of gas around it. I forget the actual elemental properties of it. But it means that when we look at it through telescopes on Earth, it just glows. It reflects the light, and we can't see through that, I suppose I'll call it an atmosphere, through that cloud layer to actually see what's on the surface. That is until the Cassini flyby that we did in recent years. That revealed that there are giant lakes all over Titan. This is super encouraging. Obviously, everything that we know about life says that you have to have water, the liquid water, in order for that to exist. The other thing that was really interesting is they discovered ethane and methane in that water. And these are organic compounds that are very often associated with life. Not necessarily indicative of life, but a highly encouraging sign. So this has been a super interesting exploration thing. So back in, I believe it was 2009, there was an idea pitched for something called the Titan Mare Explorer. Now, Mare is just a word for sea. In this case, they're really large lakes. On Titan, it's the first lakes that we've ever discovered in the solar system other than on Earth. And to give you an idea of how big Titan Mare is, it's essentially the Titan Sea, it's larger than Lake Superior on Earth. So it's like a, essentially a sea, but technically it's, it's a lake. It's not small. It is not small. No. No. Half the size of all the Great Lakes put together. So that's one place that we want to look. And the other place we want to look, the, the, I think it's the largest northern sea on Titan, is called Kraken Mare, which is a fun name. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. Release the Kraken. Exactly. And that's, yeah, the biggest one is named the Kraken. The idea here, well, there are two, there are two approaches. The first would have been a floating autonomous ship. And in this case, really in either case, but in this case, it would be the first exploration of an extraterrestrial sea. We've never had a spaceboat. And I know that that makes sense when you think about space history, but I really just love thinking about that. We've never gone on a boat in space. And there would be a wonderful parallelism to that, that the early days of human exploration were building ships and going out on the seas. And then it all curves back around that we fly through the vast chasms of space in order to land on a sea and sail across it. I love that. So the Titan Mare Explorer would have been floating on the top. It's a round, you know, we'll put pictures on the website so you can see it. It is a floating round object with a series of instruments on top and underneath the series, underneath the surface of the water. And one of my favorite aspects of it is this little curved pipe that kind of comes up from the top that would have a light on the end because it gives it this wonderful character. It almost makes it a little Pixar-ish. Mm -hmm, now, totally. any of these missions would take seven years to get to Titan which is one of the reasons it's been hard for people to get this funded is because it takes so long to see the payoff. You're essentially saying, hey, do you want to make a decade-long plan to do some complex science? Because you'd launch it, and then it would take seven years to get there, and then you'd have about a half a year of exploration. This project ended up not getting funding. It got relatively far down the line. They were developing it, but it didn't get the final funding. And so now there's a new project that instead of having the first sailing ship or ship on the surface of a 
extraterrestrial sea. They want to have the first extraterrestrial submarine go to Titan and explore the Kraken Mare. And so this one is currently being developed. If it is funded, it won't launch until 2040, and then it won't land until 2047. And then we'll get the science six months after that. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be waiting patiently. Yeah, I like I'm for that long-term investment. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I'm going to see a Saturn's moon octopus creature that breathes methane, I'll wait. I like the, the quirkiness of it. I feel like for some of the space exploration stuff, you have to get the public interested in it. I feel like that's kind of the missing piece a lot of the time. Like, no one's interested in this stuff. And so the government's like, all right, well, if we don't do this, no one's going to notice. No one's going to care. So when you have like a cool little character that everyone can rally behind, like this fun little spaceship, you know, yeah. it's it's got legs. I will patiently be waiting for this nice little ship. Yeah, I was going to say, Amanda, this is why you are the space station explainer, because this is the okay. point of view that matters the most. It's, it is about a fun character. I mean, I think that's why the Mars rovers had such, it was so easy to care about what was happening because they look like they have little eyes. You know, it's those things to stoke people's imagination, I think is the most important part of any of these. So I'm super down for a space boat or a space submarine, much more than a space x-ray laser. Yeah, it actually reminds me of, if you remember the Rosetta spacecraft and the Philae lander, how they had a, you know, a Twitter account, and a little comic, and they really anthropomorphized them and gave them, you know, a, a personality. And I don't think that that's a trivial thing to do. I think it really matters because our connection to this stuff, the humanizing of it, it connects people to its true importance. Obviously, you know, I'm preaching the choir here, but we all really believe that this stuff is important. But that last gap of getting people to feel that is important. I think that that's a, a good way to look at it. And uh, I would also point out that I think in the same way that helicopters are inherently a little bit cooler than like passenger planes, I think submarines are inherently a little bit cooler than surface boats. So Absolutely. maybe this will give it more of a chance to get done. There are also scientific reasons that it's better if they want to be studying the inside of the water and also the bottom of these lakes, the floor. It's a lot better to have a craft that's moving through the water than have a craft that's on top that's floating that might have to drop something down and drag mm -hmm. it on a cable or something like that. So from an energy perspective, it's a lot more efficient. And they, what they want to do is, you know, the goals of this mission are very, if a submarine mission happens, are very similar to the one with the boat mission. They want to find out what is this liquid made of. They want to map the floor of the sea in order to understand the geology. And then they want to see if they can see the shore and understand the way that all these oceans work. So it's pretty exciting. There's some nice images out there of what the submarine would look like. Another interesting aspect of this is that they researched all forms of submarine because this is a very different environment. They weren't sure that the solution was going to be the same as what we had figured out for submarines on Earth. But at the end of the day, they made a big long cylinder and it looks a lot like a submarine with a little sort of periscope thing on top. So it's, it's kind of charming that they came back around. Yeah, totally. totally. I think, you know, I think it's helpful to have something that people are familiar with. I'm so excited to see what they find under the surface of this spooky, liquid, gloopy ocean. I feel like they're going to just find like a ton of those like anglerfish, like those ones that already look <laughs> like they're yeah. from another planet. Those actually came from Saturn and they just ended up on Earth by accident. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're talking about the idea that 
potentially, if there is life on Titan, that life might not be carbon-based. It might be methane-based or ethane-based. And so the basic idea, I mean, just think of the biological diversity on Earth, and all of it is carbon-based. So just that basic idea of what it is to be an animal could be altered by the chemistry of that environment. That fires me up. What if it's just like everything that we have on Earth, but just multiplied by four? In Pokemon, there's a level one Pokemon, and then there's like the level two. Saturn has all the level two stuff that we haven't seen yet. Like the cheetahs run really fast and can jump 40 feet. That's what I dream of, you know? That's that's why space travel is important in space exploration, because we want to see some like juiced up animals that can do stuff that we currently don't know is possible. Oh, yeah. And any of those animals would have solved the problems that we're now struggling to solve, which is how the heck do you make a submarine that can survive in the lakes of Titan, which don't quote me on this, people, but I think they're negative 300 degrees. So (laughs) there's there's just all these challenges. They're not even sure that they can make a submarine work at all in those conditions. But I think that that makes it exciting. Totally. Cool. So those are our crazy space plans that we wanted to tell you about. Hopefully this will be something that we revisit. Obviously there are more than just the stories that we touched on here. So maybe you'll hear us come back with some other things from space history that are so outrageous they might be worth trying again. So thanks a lot, Amanda and Joe. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. You can find out more about these and other great space stories at supercluster.com. And remember, as always, space is for everyone.